Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. This podcast is going to focus on a new book that's coming out at Desert Book, um, co-published with the Maxwell Institute. And I'll let my guests introduce the book. But my guests are Patrick Mason, who's been on the podcast before, and David Pulsifer um, at B- from BYU-Idaho. They have co-written this book together, and we're going to talk about this book. I'm really excited about this book, and I'm grateful to have these two good men on the podcast to introduce this book to our listeners. So... I thought I'd have these two um, university professors, both PhDs, introduce each other. So, Patrick, will you, for anybody who doesn't know your friend David Pulsifer at BYU-Idaho, will you introduce him to our listeners? Absolutely. I'm happy to. I, I feel like um, in sacrament meeting when a new couple moves into the ward and they uh, introduce each other. So, And David and I have been joined at the hip on this for about a decade. So, uh, But David is a remarkable scholar and human being who's a professor of history at BYU-Idaho. And he is a committed peace builder. He spent time in India studying and, and learning Gandhian nonviolent philosophy and theory. Uh, he's got a PhD in American studies. And he uh, really significantly in the last couple of years has worked with his colleagues there at BYU-Idaho to start a new minor in peace and conflict transformation, uh, which is remarkable. So he teaches, in addition to lots of courses in American history, he also teaches courses in peace and peace studies there. And uh, he's just a remarkable friend and co-writer, and he kept me in check. He he kept in check all of my excesses. Uh, so I am grateful for him. David, that was great, Patrick. David, let's hear you introduce Patrick. Oh, dear. I feel like the uh, the spouse that's now standing up in sacrament <laughs> meeting and uh, and doesn't know quite exactly how to follow that. Um, Patrick uh, has been just an absolute joy to work with over the last 10 years. And we met actually. If uh, I'll, I'll introduce this, but I'll do the the uh, the story. Oh, we met story, right? <laughs> uh, we actually uh, met because a friend of mine uh, passed on a, a wonderful piece that Patrick wrote when he was still a graduate student at the Kroc Institute for International uh, Peace Building at um, or Peace Studies at Notre Dame University while he was pursuing his PhD in history. Um, published a wonderful piece called "The Possibilities of Mormon Peace." Excuse me. I choked up there. <laughs> Not because, because anyway, let me start that again. Uh, he, he wrote a wonderful book uh, or excuse me. He wrote a wonderful article called the uh, possibilities of Mormon peace building. And the friend of mine who knew my interest passed it on to me. And so at the next uh, conference of uh, Mormon history association, I accosted him uh, and uh, introduced myself and just thrilled at what he was doing. And that started a, a friendship that uh, led us to a peace studies conference in Milwaukee and uh, ultimately uh, to a peace conference uh, on peace and war, Mormon's uh, perspectives on peace and war at Claremont. And from there, um, we began this uh, collaboration on, on this particular project. But uh, Patrick brings to the table uh, some wonderful credentials, not only as a, uh, as a, uh, you know, fantastic scholar in Mormon peace studies generally, but also or, um, a wonderful scholar in, in Mormon studies generally, but also as a wonderful scholar of peace 
uh, with his training from the Kroc Institute and his books um, uh, outlining uh, Mormon violence um, and violence against Mormons and and so on, and has been uh, the person who has elevated me. If I've kept him in check, he has elevated uh, my uh, thinking and 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 helped me see possibilities that we I had not known before. Expanded my vision of peace in wonderful ways. That's great. Um, it's really good to have both of you on the podcast. And um, I didn't know David Pulsifer. Many of you do. Um, the last hour, I've just spent time on Google googling him. That's a good thing to do usually. And he gave a, a BYU uh, Idaho devotional called Love Your Enemies. And I was reading through the transcript of that. And I just recognize the good work both of you are doing to try to bring us together as the same human family. Tell us how long ago that devotional was, David. That was, I believe, in March 2016. So about, oh, wow, it's been five and a half years now. But um, that's a, uh, as I was reading through that, I really enjoyed that. I'm thinking of my older brother right now, who is a history professor at University of Oregon. He wrote a book called Surviving Genocide. He's become a scholar on Native Indians, Native Americans, and I. he would enjoy this interaction with you two, um, even though his expertise may be a little bit different. But talk about this book. Um, introduce either of you, just take the lead. Um, tell us the title of the book, um, the role of the Maxwell Institute and Desert Book, and, where to, and a description of the book. I'll just turn it over to both of you. David, go ahead. Well, the title of the book is Proclaim Peace, Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. And um, the, the basic idea of the book is to try to articulate a theology of peace um, with particular attention to the a scriptural interpretation in terms of what Latter-day Saints bring to the peace-building table. So, uh, lots of faiths talk about peace and Latter-day Saints are no different. We talk about peace all the time, but we have um, generally not been very systematic in the way we've talked about it. So this book is an attempt to try to lay out in a much more careful and systematic way what uh, Latter-day Saint theology brings to principles of peace from how power works to the nature of atonement in regards to our societies and our um, uh, and the violence within our communities and how uh, the atonement of Christ might have application in that area to thinking about what divine violence in the scriptures, um, how, how to interpret that to what um, ultimately a peace building um, Mormon peace building, the, its ultimate goal is a society built around justice and equity, and, and we call it Zion. And uh, at the, the end of the book, we're basically talking about what steps we might take to move forward towards that ultimate goal of, of a, a Zion society, or what peace scholars would call just peace. Um, and so the the attempt was we, we started the attempt largely because nothing like it existed out there. And we wanted to um, start a conversation about what peace means to Latter-day Saints um, 
and uh, what we could bring to other traditions that are also exploring peace. Patrick. Yeah, well, that's that's a perfect encapsulation. And and we really we're standing on the shoulders of others uh, within our tradition who have thought about this. Uh, people like Hugh Nibley and Gene England and Carolyn Pearson and and, uh, you know, and, and, and lots of people who who have thought about this. But um, but as David said, a lot of that had been done in, in essay form or in short form or, you know, kind of um, sporadic pieces. And and we really thought that if if as Latter-day Saints, we want to take peace and peace building seriously, we need to do the work of diving into our own tradition to see what resources are there. And so we believe, because we've we've both been lifelong members of the church, we, we know that Latter-day Saints have a heart for peace. Uh, we, we, we know that Latter-day Saints want to be a people of peace and want to follow the Prince of Peace. Um, but, but sometimes just raw desire isn't enough because we live in a world of conflict and we live in a world that brings conflict on a personal level, on a familial level, on a community level, on an, on an international level. And so unless we've done the hard work of really mining our tradition to think about what it says about peace and peace building on each of those levels, then we're going to be sort of left adrift. And uh, when, when it when push comes to shove. And so that's what we really want to do. It's, it's as David said, this is a work of scriptural theology. We do. I mean, if, if you look at the back, we have a scripture index that that, that, that shows all the, 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 you know, the scriptural work that we're doing here. And while we do engage with the Bible, lots of other Christian and Jewish scholars have, have wrestled with the Bible. So we really zeroed in on the distinctive scriptures of, of the Latter-day Saints to, to see what they have to say about peace and conflict. And we hope that, uh, that people will be uh, surprised maybe by, by some of the things that, 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 we, that have, we've drawn out. We haven't rewritten any scriptures. We haven't made anything up. But, but maybe seeing some things that were in plain sight. But, but hiding from our view. That's cool. That's very exciting. Talk about, I'm thinking now, um, as we're working to always improve our restored church, improve the culture, are there things that you hope generally we're able to do better in the church at a local level, institutional, because of the things that you're bringing forth in the book? Yeah, maybe I'll start here. I mean, we one of the closing chapters of the book is called Just Ward Theory, and this is our little play off of the more familiar Just War Theory. And we we think that the Latter-day Saints have a really distinctive gift in the form of our congregational life, in the sense of wards and stakes where, where people already come together as communities. They, uh, th- these are communities of, of people who love one another and support one another and, and these kind of rich social bonds that, that we build within our wards and stakes. And it's remarkable. And we all know the kinds of service that are done for one another within, you know, when somebody gets cancer, when somebody goes through a divorce, when somebody's, you know, gets sick, uh, all the, you know, experiences financial hardship. So, so we know the strength of, of the ward internally. But but we feel like the, the part of what Zion calls us to do is to leverage that strength as communities for the blessing of the world 
and it begins in our communities. And so we 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 think about ways after we set out all these kind of principles and, and the kind of theological foundation in the early chapters, really the payoff is at the end for us to think about how do we mobilize not only as individuals, but as Latter-day Saint communities to go out and make a difference in the world. And, and we've, we've already begun to see some of this, the way that Latter-day Saints have risen to the challenge in terms of refugee resettlement, for instance, has been remarkable. I, th- I think we've been among the best uh, throughout the United States and Europe in the way that we've mobilized uh, around that. And that's a very significant issue and, and a significant aspect of peace building. But there are lots of different needs. Conflict takes a lot of different forms. But we really feel like Latter-day Saints are well poised and positioned to to, to bring all the strength of our community to make a difference uh, for other people uh, and in the service of peace. Thank you. I might add just that we already so many of the pieces are already in place uh, that just need to be maybe repurposed or refocused in, in various ways to, to make difference and not in fundamental ways, but just in, in incremental ways. Um, I think we've seen in the, in the missionary efforts, uh, the ways in which missionaries and, and the COVID uh, uh, experiences taught us that missionary work can be rethought in some pretty remarkable ways to um, leverage um, things like social media um, we can think about all sorts of ways in which missionary work can go out and serve the world and 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 the, the kinds of service that missionaries are already giving are just one example of something that's changed, for, for example, from when I was a missionary in the 1980s, which is starting to date me now. But uh, the way in which the church has implemented um, the service within the kind of daily experience of uh, weekly experience of missionaries is one ways in which we're starting to turn um, towards not just um, uh, not just teaching missionary discussions per se, but um, feeding people's um, bodies and clothing their nakedness and and doing all of the things that ultimately need to happen to make uh, society more just, more peaceful to bring Zion about um, so that um, so, so that these kinds of resources, the, the kinds of work we do in the aftermath of disasters, the kinds of work we're doing with refugees, all sorts of things. Mormons are, or Latter-day Saints are really good at organizing when we've got a vision of something uh, and, and being able to capture um, possibilities and then going out and, and working to get it done. Um, Hopefully, the book provides a certain new vision, new possibilities that we can then take that incredible Latter-day Saint organizational skills to and really tackle some of the, the, the bigger challenges in the world. Um, and, and thinking out of, outside of just our community, but to that, those broader structural, societal, systematic problems that um, we have um, certain resources and and perspectives and talents that could be brought to bear on those problems. Why do you think our church is sort of at a point now in its maturity, and this may get into Patrick's prior book, this, the, that we're in a position structurally with the church that we can do some of the things that both of you are talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not running for our lives. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that helps. And... 
And we, you know, but the thing is, this vision goes all the way back. I mean, Joseph Smith, even while they were running for their lives in the 1830s and 1840s uh, into the 1850s, I mean, they they had a vision that this religion was bigger than just another church. It, it was never meant to be just another denomination in in the sort of landscape of Christian denominations. That that there was always this ambitious, audacious vision of of transforming the world, of being the leaven in society, of being you know the salt, uh, the light that would that would transform society. And you know, as, as recently as um, you know, a couple of general conferences ago, uh, one of our COVID conferences, El- Elder Holland talked about how when and, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but but he said when we get past this pandemic then we're going to turn our attention to ending the virus of hunger, ending the virus of poverty, ending the virus of racism, right? I mean, all these kinds of things. And, and this, this is what we, we can do. In addition to all the other things we do, we teach our classes, we, you know, and, and we send out missionaries, we do temple work, we do all these kinds of things. But actually, if we think holistically about all of this being part of, of a kind of peaceable walk, in the world, of bringing about Christ's peaceable kingdom and being intentional about it. Uh, because, you know, both David and I, we're, we're both professors. We spend a lot of time with, you know, 18 to 21-year-old students who are, and these are remarkable people. These are people who want to go out and change the world. These are people who see injustice. They see conflict. They see inequity. And they want to go out and do something to solve it. And one of our main purposes was with this book is to write to our students, frankly, and say, when you want to go out and be a peace builder, when you want to go and address injustice in the world, you can do that as a Latter-day Saint, not as something adjacent to your religion, but as something right at the heart of your religion. To follow Jesus means to go straight into those areas of inequity and injustice and to bring light and love and peace into those areas where there's conflict. So we want our students to, to, to do this kind of peace building work, but to do it from their deepest commitments as Latter-day Saints. Love that. David. I think to add to that, they we're taking our cues in part as, as Patrick mentioned from the kinds of conversations we're hearing from prophets and apostles. Um, it's not just elder Holland who's talking about this, um, Elder Christofferson's talked about building Zion. Um, so many uh, conversations about addressing racism uh, that are coming over the, the pulpit at General Conference now, right? Elder Oaks addressing these issues, others addressing these issues. Um, and one of the the people who's I think is inspiring us from that end is um, uh, from the beginning has been, um, and when this project started. He was just Elder Russell M. Nelson, but now as President Russell M. Nelson, he gave a talk back in 2003 called Blessed Are the Peacemakers, in which he said, peace is possible in this world. And sometimes I think as Latter-day Saints, we can be a little bit like some other denominations who say, you know, it's just all going to hell in a handbasket and, and we, there's nothing we can do um, until just hang on until the second coming. Um, the inspiration of, of uh, Elder, then Elder Nelson, now President Nelson, in that peace is possible here. We can build Zion now. We can um, uh, tackle these problems. 
And then to watch him as President Nelson, having kind of given that talk, you know, 17 years ago, eight or, you know, 18 years ago, and now um, going very specifically to using church resources to address um, structural inequality, to uh, tackle, uh, along with the NAACP, uh, issues of racism and, and, and marshalling resources and, and essentially calling us to, the, to this effort, to join in this effort um, to um, bring greater peace to the world. And uh, it's, it's, I think we're kind of in a, a really interesting and remarkable moment where that kind of pivot is beginning to occur. And uh, his prophetic leadership has been wonderful in that regard. And we're in many ways just trying to respond to that call. And, and one of the things that, that, that I should uh, add is that while this is a work very much of restoration scriptural theology, and we're very much taking our cues from, from many of the, the living prophets and apostles of the church, we also acknowledge that as Latter-day Saints, we're sort of behind the curve when it comes to the peace-building conversation, that our sisters and brothers in other traditions have oftentimes outpaced us on this. And so, so you'll see in the book a lot of quotes from, uh, from, from, from people from other traditions, uh, from, from other, other religious leaders, other religious thinkers who have spent a lot of time uh, both thinking about these things and, and then being in the trenches and developing these kinds of theories. And, and we're not at all bashful about that. I mean, we as Latter-day Saints can learn from our sisters and brothers all around the world uh, who are doing good work, who are inspired by our heavenly parents, uh, who are, 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 you know, bringing about and living out these principles of peace that, that, that we can uh, learn from. So, so David and I, at, at several junctures, we, we were able to see things in our own scripture as Latter-day Saints because of the lenses that were given to us by our sisters and brothers from other faiths or, or no faith at all. I love that. Talk about some of the, or you, it's your time, but talk about eventually some of the scriptures that are central to you that um, you draw out of the book that are pla- sort of foundational scriptures for this, the message you're sharing and the focus of the book. Well, I think uh, there's couple, several that are very key to, to our analysis. Um, one of them is one that we quote often in relation to um, priesthood, but has much broader applications that we often don't uh, explore. And that's uh, section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which talks about the kinds of power and influence that can be maintained in the world. That, and that the, the influences by which power and influence are maintained in the world are um, gentleness, uh, kindness, love unfeigned. Persuasion. Persuasion. Yes. All of these principles of uh, what what scholars would call nonviolent power um, are really central to that that whole notion and not just to power as it operates within the church or the ways that a bishop ought to lead his congregation, but the way power works in the universe, so the way power works uh, in God's power in this world, and the way power works generally among societies and, and individuals. And it's when we start to grasp the profound nature of that insight that 
that you cannot maintain power through fear, through violence. Uh, you can achieve power for a time, but you can't achieve it indefinitely. It can't endure. Yeah, it cannot be maintained. Um, that only power that comes through um, the pure love of Christ is power that that is will have that kind of uh, influence in the world. Once you grasp that, you begin to see it in all sorts of places. You begin to see it all in in, in all of the stories in in the Book of Mormon. You begin to see it uh, in the stories of the Old and New Testament. You begin to recognize it as it plays out in how nations treat one another, how uh, individuals uh, in families and workplaces uh, treat one another. And you begin to realize that peace is built fundamentally on those principles. Um, another scripture that we go to frequently is um, section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which says renounce war and proclaim peace, and then lays out so many important principles about um we often refer to these texts as a ways to justify violence, but if we read it much more carefully, we'll see that it's actually a call to a higher law um, and a, a call to go that violence can be justified in certain circumstances, but justification um, of something is not necessarily a an endorsement of it. It means that it's something that's normally wrong that under certain circumstances may not um, be um you know, put on our charge seat, so to speak, um, but that there are things that are not just justified, but are sanctifying in this world. And again, love and uh, approaching uh, our enemies in a spirit of, of forgiveness and generosity will go a long ways towards eliminating those enemy, enemies than uh, than justified violence ever will. And it will transform them in the ways that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's transform their enemies. Um, and again, once you start looking for, it's understanding those principles, you start to see those principles showing up all throughout uh, Restoration Scripture. And it's really um, been a, a wonderful journey for both of us to see and read Scripture in these ways that, that transform how we understand our own theology. Yeah, another uh, absolutely key text for us uh, is the Sermon on the Mount, which is quite possibly the greatest sermon ever preached. And we we say, you know, kind of in a joking manner, but not really joking, that Latter-day Saints, we have this sermon twice, both in uh, Matthew, actually twice in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke, uh, but then also in Third Nephi. So Latter-day Saints should take the Sermon on the Mount at least twice as seriously as, as anybody else. And this is where we learn to love our enemies. And this is where we learn uh, what it means to, to, to be a peacemaker and then apply those things. So we, we do, as I said, even though we, we focus mostly on Restoration Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount is there. Uh, but the life and teachings and ministry and atonement of Jesus is absolutely central to our analysis. Uh, I think readers will find, and frankly, this you had asked about Deseret Book. This is one of the things that Deseret Book really liked about our book is just how Christ-centered it is. Um, from his pre-existence uh, and, and the pre-mortal councils through his life and ministry and death and resurrection, uh, all the way to his continuing ministry today, that this is a book that is deeply centered on the person and character of Jesus and what it means for us to, to follow that. Those are great examples. 
I mean, I'm a fa- my wife and I have six kids, you know, age 20 to 30. And I've, as I've listened to them and uh, much of the things that you're talking about is part of their vision for the world. They want our faith to be able to go out and help on these. And they want to be in our faith as they do this, um, to see our faith take on um, sort of the major social issues and want our faith to lead on this. And they want to be a part of a faith that's working to solve world problems. And I think that they're drawn to that more than I was at their age. Um, so I think that what you're sharing and the, the fundamental doctrinal foundation of our church to do this, and it just seems like, to your point, Patrick, we're not running anymore. We're not, you know, fighting for our lives. We may be in some areas and some situations symbolically, but we're just seems like this is a great time. And it seems like this younger group is wired to do this. We talk a lot about each generation being stronger and different. And I'm certainly picking that up. We have a, she'll be embarrassed. I give her a call out. We have a daughter at Harvard Divinity School and she took an internship this summer between her years of World Religions for Peace. And this is the world she's in. She's lived in China. She's lived in multiple countries as a young woman. Um, and all this is preparing. What she wants to do is the very things that you're talking about, but it's the doctrine of our church that's driving her to do this. And she wants to be involved in these issues to make the world a better place. And she wants to have her foot in the church as she does this. And um, just one other interesting experience I had that... Um, I've shared this a little bit, but this dates me more than, you know, I was a missionary in Northern England in 1980. And right before we got there, our mission president, Ellis Ivory, who is still alive, he was in his thirties when he was our mission president. So that's a long time ago and he's still alive. He felt like our culture in Northern England was too much versus us versus the church of England. And we had kind of created an enemy in the church of England. And he thought it was actually hurting our ability to take the restored gospel message and so he did something really creative, and I'm not sure you could get do this anymore in the church, but he held an all-mission conference in a church of England, and he had the vicar speak to us. And I, was, I got there right after, but it fundamentally changed the culture of our mission. And we no longer demonized the Church of England. We could take our positive message of the restored gospel. Our baptism significantly increased. No one joined the Church of England. And one of our missionaries, 35 years later— went to that same church of England. They were doing a fundraiser to save the Tower Bell. And all of us missionaries, we have a mission picture in front of this church of England, um, raised $20,000 and the new mission president, the new vicar did a check presentation. It was covered by the press in Britain. And we didn't sell out our doctrine to do that. We just used the doctrine you're talking about to bring us together as the same human family and reduce the divisiveness And I just, it's not like a zero sum game where we gave up something to do that. It was just, and it fundamentally probably changed me more than I realized at that time to have that experience. And so I love what my mission president taught me way back then and, and how our younger people are, are, are wanting to move in that direction. So just keep, what else comes to your mind? Well, I I love that, that your daughter is there at Harvard studying world religions for peace. And, and our ambition is, you know, right now there, there's no reason that Harvard should include Latter-day Saints in that curriculum, but that's, that's our fault. That's our, that's, that's not Harvard's fault for ignoring us. 
that's our fault for not having made ourselves worthy of notice in the peace building conversation. And so that's absolutely one of our goals. I mean, we, we look around, uh, uh, both of us have, have friends and, and, and colleagues of, of all faiths, you know, Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and, and Christians of different persuasions and Hindus who, who are doing amazing peace building work all around the world. And, uh, and I think when people think about Mormons, they think about missionaries. They don't think about peace builders. And it seems to me is that as followers of Jesus, we can do both. We can do both and, right? Yes, we can follow the Great Commission to go out into all the world. Uh, but at the same time, we can follow Jesus's admonition to proclaim peace to all the world. And we can do both at the same time as Latter-day Saints. We're people of tremendous capacity. So my hope is that we earn our way into Harvard's curriculum. And we do it not by protesting, how come you're not talking about us? But we do it in such a way that our peace-building contribution to the world becomes uh, absolutely unavoidable. And, and so when people, and so that partly when people think about Latter-day Saints, they think, oh yeah, those are people of peace. Love that. David. I, I just would echo that and, and just re- reinforce something that's already been said, but I think um, your, your, your description of your children uh, matches the, what I'm discovering with my own children who are between the ages of 14 and 27. So I'm just a little behind uh, you, but uh, I have children who deeply want to make a difference in the world. I have students who want to make a difference in the world. There, there is a hunger. Patrick mentioned this earlier. There is a hunger in this rising generation to, to transform the world, to, to not just hunker down and wait for the second coming to come and, and make everything right in the world, but to actually prepare a place for the Savior to return to, to have um, Zion established not just as a, a religious community, but as a community that, of justice and, and, and uh, economic um, opportunity and fairness and and a place that where um, all of the peace loving people of the world can gather together and strengthen one another and be a part of, of uh, I, I think some of the most beautiful descriptions of Zion are the way in which it's not just a Latter-day Saint community, but that it involves people from all of these um, wonderful uh, religious communities and even people of no, no religious community coming together um, because they want to build the kind of place that even if they don't believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the kind of place where he can return to his people. And I, I think that that vision is just really strong in this younger generation and, and, our ambition here is to pr- provide, a, um, if nothing else, a, a, maybe a, a potential guide to help people into that and to, to see how they can move forward, not just with one foot in the church and another in the peace building community, but to be, move forward as Latter-day Saints and to bring peace to the world. And, and that's what David just referred to as one of the remarkable texts of the restoration of section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's exactly how it explains Zion. It talks about Zion 
as a refuge from the nation, from the conflicts and the wars of the world. And it specifically says the Zion will be the place that people will flee to those who do not want to take up their sword against their neighbor. So Zion is the place. It's a cosmopolitan community of peace. It's it's the place where people who do not want to raise their sword against their neighbor, they will come to Zion. But we have to build that kind of community for, for that that will attract them. The thought comes to my mind uh, as you both are talking is the desire to really own our doctrine. Um, there is powerful yeah. doctrine that you both are sharing that I'm not aware of some of the things you've shared and then the implication of those doctrine and the desire to create Zion within our church and have people drawn to us because of the things that you're talking about. So sometimes I think, you know, I love the idea of if we own our doctrine, we do what both of you are suggesting to do and what many are wired to do naturally. Talk about sometimes in my you know, in a lot of LDS congregations right now with COVID, there's probably more division within our church at a local level. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to get too much into COVID because I don't know how to talk about that, not divide us. <laughs> um, my own elders corn president introduced um, Sunday and says, I know there's a lot of you with a lot of different feelings about COVID. And I just want you to know you're all welcome here with your individual ideas. And he's sensitive that he doesn't want and I, you don't need to get into COVID, but I don't know if you want to general, share general principles um, internally that we can use or doctrine or scriptures that helps unite us as Zion within our, because obviously if we're not united, if our house is divided, it's harder for us to do the things you're talking about. We sort of need to make sure our own house is united as we go out and bring peace to the world. Yeah, I'll let David take this and also pitch an earlier book that he wrote called When We Don't See Eye to Eye, which is all about sort of practical uh, ideas about interpersonal, you know, relationships and how, how to create peace in our interpersonal relationships. I'll also plug one of our good friends uh, and colleagues is Chad Ford, who's built the Peace Book Building Program at BYU-Hawaii. And he has a terrific book called Dangerous Love, which also applies these principles to kind of interpersonal relationships as well as broader ones. But uh, with those two plugs, I'll, I'll let uh, David actually answer your question. <laughs> and I love David's book. I actually found it. It's got two fish looking at each other as the yeah. <laughs> cover. It's eye to eye. I love that visual. And we've had Chad on the podcast way back. If anybody wants to hear T Chad talk, Chad Ford at BYU, I mean, yeah, BYU-Hawaii, BYU talk about that yeah. book. You could search backwards. David. Well, so much of what I've learned uh, comes from people like Chad and Patrick and others. Um, and by the way, that, that book you refer to, we, we uh, affectionately call it the fish book in our, <laughs> our family. So <laughs> um, there is, I think you're spot on. Uh, here in Rexburg, Idaho, we have noticed um, the divisions that are increasing amongst us as Latter-day Saints. And one of the things that we will need to do if we want to be to build Zion is we will need to be able to find a way to live with one another with our differences. Um, uh, one of the things that we talk about in the book is that conflict and uh, is not inherently wrong and that the conflict is actually baked into the very uh, notion of creation 
that creation as described in all of the four accounts that we have, including the temple account, describes division. God divides the light from the darkness. God divides the land from the water. And the minute you divide something, you put an intention with it, with its opposite, uh, like light and darkness and water and land. And as that tension occurs, it, creation comes from it. It's the tension between water and land that creates the beautiful mountain of the Tetons that are near here in Rexburg, Idaho. It's the tension between night and day that creates the sunrises and the sunsets. So tension and conflict are at the heart of the creative process. So learning how to see other people that's, that have that see the world so differently, and COVID is, is actually just a great example of, of deep differences that have been exposed over the last year or so. Um, I think we kind of sail along sometimes in our congregations with a sense that we all are the same, but then we begin to realize how different we really are from one another. And it's, uh, and that happens in a marriage. It happens uh, in all sorts of places. And we can engage those differences in the spirit of love and a spirit of forgiveness and generosity. And when we do, then we find that we create and we make the world more beautiful. If we've engaged those differences in a spirit of anger, fear, distrust, then the conflict takes a, a, a nasty turn towards the destructive. And we, we find ourselves um, destroying the very things we love. And so a lot of it, uh, the answer comes in being able to see difference as not something to, that needs to be um, eliminated or overcome or conquered, but to be engaged and held uh, and, and even um, encouraged in many ways to bring joy and beauty into the world. Um, and that's just a fundamental mind shift that we have to, to begin with. And then from there... Um, we engage conflict, seeing the people on the other side as people with, with, um, that are just as real and, and just as beautiful as we are with our differences. Um, and out of that, uh, that we will, will transform conflict. We talk about conflict transformation as opposed to conflict resolution. It's not about resolving the conflict or having one side win or coming up with some compromise it's about transforming conflict so that it creates rather than destroys wow that's yeah, we, powerful we, we both are really formed by this uh, idea of conflict transformation which was de developed by john paul lederach who was a great mennonite peace builder st still is uh, still active uh, uh, and um but for us, you know, a kind of key text that Latter-day Saints always come back to is 3 Nephi 11, where Jesus says, you know, contention is of the devil. And, and he's, he's right. Uh, because he's, of course he is, because he's Jesus. Um, but, uh, but, you know, too often we have read that as conflict is of the devil. And as David just said, that, that is not true. Uh, Jesus wasn't talking about conflict coming from the devil. It's contention. It's engaging in conflict with anger, with recrimination, with a, a sense of not seeing the humanity of the other, with the sense of a kind of win-lose mentality, a zero-sum game that I can only benefit at your expense. 
Those are the kinds of things. That way of engaging conflict is exactly what Jesus warned us against. When he says it's of the devil, you know, uh, you know, one of the, the devil's name is the accuser. Uh, and so when, when we enter into conflict with accusation, with those kinds of things, rather than with seeing the full humanity of the other person and seeking to elevate the, the, the relationship. So as usual, Jesus is right. Well, that's really powerful. Um, really powerful. I'm going to replay that segment from both of you. Um, that's music to my ears and kind of healing and kind of a higher, holier law. That yeah. It uh, feels really right to me. Um, especially this idea we don't resolve it, one doesn't win. I just, that feels right to me as we need to learn. I have this quote that I sometimes share in the podcast that you're both familiar with, but it's Elder Cook's quote, unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity. The Savior's ministry and message have constantly declared all races and colors are children of God. We're all brothers and sisters. That's some of his last conference talks, hearts knit together in righteousness and unity. And I used to kind of think my congregation was just an extension of my political party or my club or my high school. And I gradually have understanding that it's not ever meant to be that way. It's meant to be this um, diversity, this needed diversity that um, can bring us together as the same human family and elevate us all and teach us principles that are really important to us and our careers and our families and our extended circles and allow us then to do the sort of work um, outside of, you know, the kind of work in the world that we need to do. Yeah, the, the danger, Richard, is exactly what you said, when the world is too much with us, when we let the conflicts, the, the negative conflicts of the world invade our church spaces it's supposed to be the exact way around, uh, other way around, that the church is supposed to provide a prophetic witness of, of, to the world of the way of Jesus. Uh, and so we're supposed to learn to relate to one another, to love one another, uh, to transform our conflicts in love in a different way within the walls of the church, and then take that in, out into the world, not to bring all the contention of the world into the church. One of the things culturally that I've picked up, and I think it's what my mission president was trying to address way back in 1980, is this us versus them. Often we do find community in this sort of like us versus them. And there's a that's a real thing. There are people whose efforts are to destroy the church and um, end our mission. And, and so I found we do find community in the us versus them, but I've wondered if we've, I don't know what the right words are. I just sense, especially the millennials don't really want to, that doesn't resonate with them as much. Um, they're looking for a way to still honor our doctrine and stand up for the teachings of our church and defend our church as appropriately as, as needed, but not in sort of this warlike us versus them finding community Brene Brown calls it common enemy intimacy is that's how we find community is just that we hate the same people. That's community, but it's not the higher holier law that you're helping us understands in our doctrine. Any thoughts on that? I think it's interesting. The, the phrases that we use um, defend our doctrine. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we're in a war. We, we use these kind of metaphors quite frequently um, without even realizing it. Um, how much of them are are 
born out of um, military conflict and and so on. But um, I think what many of this generation perceives is that it's not necessarily about defending necessarily, you know, drawing up the creating fortifications, pulling up the drawbridge, you know, and shooting arrows from the, uh, you know, from the towers, but it's about engaging. We want to take our, our faith. We want to hold it dear and then take it out into the world and, and to engage it with, with the rest of the world. Again, in a, a, a recognition that there's going to be some pretty significant differences between what we what we hold dear and what someone else holds dear, and that yes, they might uh, even be in conflict with one another, but that we can engage those conflicts in creative ways rather than destructive ways. And the the, the big challenge I think is that our um, our world does not provide us a lot of good role models of how creative. Uh, uh, conflict looks. We have multiple myriad of just, you know, it's ubiquitous uh, forms of negative conflict, destructive conflict. And so um, we learn bad habits of, about how to, about how to engage the world and defend our doctrine. And we think defending our doctrine sometimes means going on it on the social media and slamming the, person who uh, said one thing that we think is is out there we we're uh, uh, defending and and you can see this in in a lot of different ways people are defending their their perspective against all against all attacks when in fact the the model again from jesus is to engage one another in our differences and to listen to one another and to open our hearts to one another and to love our enemies and pray for those who are speaking ill of us and to truly wish the best for them. And in doing so, we defend our doctrine in a much more engaging way than uh, when we try to defend it uh, according to the models that the world throws up for us. And and exactly. And I think one thing that is important to, to realize is that you know, in the short term, the results of peacemaking are not always happy. And one of the things, you know, we, we oftentimes think about the the casualties of war, right? And, and we know that when people go to war, there are casualties and not everybody comes home. Uh, and people who do come home aren't, aren't the same. Well, when, when people go out and put themselves on the line as peacemakers, the same thing can happen. Um, think about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They transformed that conflict, um, but a thousand of them died. Think about, of course, the, the most significant example, the Prince of Peace, Jesus. He's crucified. And one of the lessons of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it tests our faith as to whether or not we really believe in Jesus's promise that there's more to this universe than what we see. Uh, Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And this is the fundamental promise of the resurrection, that the moral equation of this universe is bigger and grander and longer than simply might makes right. 
uh, or you know the kind of the the immediate effects, which then leads to a kind of means justify or the ends justify the means. Uh, Jesus teaches that the means and the ends should always be commensurate because we believe in a universe that bends towards justice, and so so that you know the crucifixion of Jesus uh, is a sober reminder to us that not all of our victories will be short-term victories, um, but that uh, but that the universe does, in the end, weigh in for justice and for mercy and for peace and for compassion and for persuasion, not brute force. I think this is one of the most surprising things that students find when they start studying peace is how dangerous it is. Um, that it's not sitting around holding hands, singing Kumbaya. Uh, it is not necessarily that a, a, a pursuing peace is not um, safe. Pursuing peace is dangerous. When Chad Ford calls it dangerous love, he's talking about that moment in which we turn towards our enemy and open ourselves to their humanity. And when we do that, that's a really dangerous move. And whether that's just um, somebody that you're in verbal conflict with or somebody that you're, you know, is shooting at you, that turn towards your enemy and to open yourself to their humanity is a dangerous move. But the remarkable part of it is that not only does it have long-term benefits, as Patrick was describing, but... Uh, the thing that I find one of the most beautiful and, and paradoxical elements of this is that it often has real immediate short-term consequence as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you, when you open yourself as the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did, yes, a thousand of them die. And that's that on the face of it is, is, is just a horrifying number. When we start comparing it to the numbers of uh, Nephites who died in physical battles, protecting their, their, communities with swords and and spears um actually fewer anti-nephi lehi's died in protection of their community and i I think something we miss about the story they were protecting their community they were going out and putting themselves on the line as uh, as as a way of protecting their community they protect their community with a a fewer loss of life uh, than your average battle in the book of mormon Um, and so uh, it's dangerous. It's, it, it can get you killed, um, but it also can transform things in a remarkable way here and now, as well as leading to those long-term, that long-term arc that Patrick's talking about. There's a beautiful line I think you both have used that is open yourself to their humanity. Um, there's a message there about the other side and that they're human and they have real stories and they have the same hopes and dreams that perhaps we do. I'm I'm thinking back to my YSA assignment and the level of anxiety with some of the YSAs around the political divisiveness. And this is five years ago. It's only worse now. And I gradually got the impression with many of them to told them just to turn off cable news that, you know, on both sides, um, most of what they were hearing was how bad the other side was. It wasn't fact-based on the issues of the day. It was just throwing bombs on the other side. And the latest awful thing somebody said on the other side, that then they, it, it created some common enemy intimacy, but it created a huge amount of anxiety and stress and angst. And, and I just encouraged 
many of the YSAs to just stand for your own beliefs. You don't need a bogeyman. You don't need a villain. You can have a fact-based discussion in it. But I, you know, I'm thinking about what both of you are saying, and I'm feeling just more peace. Um, I'm feeling the things I'm creating in this society right now is just healing and calm and Jesus and love and primary songs and things that bring us together. And there's, I'm getting a bit emotional with how much division there is in the world and how it's so opposite of what Christ taught. And sometimes he gets weaponized in this whole equation, as we all know. Um, this is really helpful. And I think it's really needed in our faith community right now. And it's, you two aren't making stuff up just to fit some sort of agenda. I mean, everything you come back to is the doctrine of our church, the scriptures, what our leaders are teaching. And I think um, I just invite listeners to do things they can do to um, find ways to find common ground with people that are different, to open yourself to their humanity. Read this book. Um, own our doctrine to try to bring more peace into the world. I, I listeners think these are the last days and um, Satan is real, but I also think it can be our finest moment as a faith and do the things you talk about to significantly take our message to the world and significantly take the infrastructure and the, you know, the ability we are as an institutional church to um, be known for peace and be known for world efforts to solve major societal problems. More things you'd each, we probably got time for each of you to just give us how long you want to go. One more segment from each of you. Well, I'll, thanks, Richard, for this opportunity and for the great conversation. I'll, I'll just finish with this, picking up on what you said. Peace is not partisan. And this is one of the things we tried really hard to do in the book, and, and we hope uh, readers will, will recognize it, um, that this is not a left-right issue. This, this is not – peace is part of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and it's not just one of the offerings on the buffet menu that actually to be a Christian – means that peace and peacemaking is a staple of your diet. And so, so we hope this book, uh, we, we know that at least within the United States, the, the ideas of peace and peacemaking and so, and so forth have sometimes been associated with the political left over the, fifth, the past half century or so. Um, I think that's really unfortunate because all humans crave peace. All of us, uh, and fundamentally, the bedrock doctrine of our church is that we have a heavenly mother and father who love every single one of their children, every single one. And so that the, when I am in conflict with somebody, whether it be in my marriage, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be on the freeway, whether it be internationally, the person on the other side is every bit as much a child of God as I am, with all of the infinite worth and dignity and potential that I have. And that becomes the fundamental way we have to engage one another. And so it's not fundamentally about partisanship. It's not about politics. It's not, you know, we, we bring these principles to our partisanship to hopefully heal it. We bring these principles to our politics, to our communities, to our marriages uh, in order to hopefully transform them 
and make them the kinds of relationships that God has in mind for us. That's great. David? I think the thing that I have come to appreciate through this um, decade-long process that we've been involved in is how much of all of this is hiding, as, as Patrick mentioned earlier, just hiding in plain sight. It's right there in the scriptures. It's, it's woven into the fabric of the scriptural narratives, and it's in every element. And it's a, particularly in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we begin to take that life and ministry and teachings more seriously, we begin to, to realize that the, the Savior of the world um, lived in a way that earns the, uh, his moniker of Prince of Peace, and that every principle we need to find peace is there in his life and in his teachings and in his death, um, uh, which is something as Latter-day Saints, we don't focus on a lot. We, we want to jump right to the resurrection because that's the, the, the happy end of the story. But if we start looking at the meaning of, of the crucifixion, this is something that we uh, deal with in the book. And we begin to appreciate what that means in terms of how we engage conflict and, and the tools um, and the, the, the salvation that is offered through Christ's willing sacrifice and the model that that is in many ways for us. Uh, it's a transformative experience and you begin to realize that, um, that so much of this is just out there waiting for us to discover it uh, and that we just have to have the eyes to see it. And once we do, you can't unsee it. <laughs> and uh, the, the beauty of Christ's ministry takes on an even deeper uh, meaning when you realize it's not just for us individually, but ultimately it is the path to save our society. And uh, that has been a, just a wonderful um, part of this journey as, as, as I feel like this, the Spirit has helped teach me to read and to, to see the meaning of Christ in much uh, deeper ways than I had ever seen it before. That's great. Once again, listeners, the book is named Proclaim Peace, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. It's co-published by the Maxwell's Institute Living Faith Series and Desert Book. It's at Desert Book. It's it's at Amazon. And and when I read a book like this, listeners, I try to just, and this be my invitation to you, you don't have to change the world by reading this book. Don't get overwhelmed and say you've got to go to China and solve some world issue. Just do what you can in your circle of influence. It may be just first like I try to do is what do I need to change in my heart? What can I learn from a book like this? And then what can I do perhaps in my family circle or with a friend next door that is different than me? So don't get overwhelmed with you've got to change the world. Just act on the impressions of what you can do in your circle of influence to make a difference. And if we all do that, we change the world. Um, 
Thank you for Joseph Stewart, the publication, the public communications guru at the Maxwell Institute. He's the one that connected us together to do this podcast. I'm so glad to do this podcast. And Patrick, I always have to give you a big thank for the book. Before I knew who you were, somebody gave me the book Planted, Believing and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. Just a very helpful book for me at a key point in my life where I needed some other tools and some other skills as I made my way forward as a committed Latter-day Saint. So you have been um, your role in my life. I tell you that because I think both of your roles in a lot of people's lives, you have no idea how you've helped people. And Patrick, you've significantly helped me and both of you in hearing your words in this podcast. So this is Richard Osler signing off with Patrick Mason and David Pulsifer in another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And we'll, listeners will link, link to this book in our in our podcast description. So if you missed it, you can click on the link and get right to the book. Thank you. Mm-hmm.